Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. As always, this episode is brought to you by EDMProd.com, an online resource dedicated to teaching electronic producers the tools and tactics needed to make better music. If you want to level up your production skills, whether it's learning the basics, writing better music, improving your mixes, or developing a more creative mindset, we've got you covered. Now, in this episode, I have a chat with producer Morgan Madison. Morgan Madison is a fantastic producer whose unique brand of atmospheric house music has landed him on labels like Lowy Palace and Parametric Records. Now, if you're currently struggling to gain any traction with your artist project and you really don't know why, keep listening on as in this episode, we're going to discuss some of the main mistakes that producers make that hurts their ability to gain a following and grow a career. Now, in this episode, we start off with Morgan Madison's background, looking at his progression from corporate lobbying to pursuing a career in music. We dive into the lengthy journey that it took to find his current sound, which included a previous artist project and several rebrands, something that pretty much all artists go through. Morgan was independent for the first few years of this project, so we talk about what he learned in that time period about marketing, promotion, and branding to grow his career to the point that it's at now. We also talk about the idea of being comfortable with wanting to be a musician, which is a problem a lot of producers face, I know I definitely did, due to external pressure from both friends and family. Now on the production side, we cover several aspects of Morgan Madison's production workflow. He's currently sitting on 40 plus finished tracks, which you can bet that I asked him about in this episode. We discuss how he's able to write so much music, diving into his default template, his songwriting process, and his approach to sound design, especially early on when a lot of people don't want to spend too much time on the sound design while the track's not there yet. He also dissects his approach for mixing his kick and bass, how he adds dense reverbs to his tracks without muddying the mixes up, and his unique approach to layering sounds. Now, before we wrap things up, Morgan Madison is releasing a new single next week called Already Known. I'll play you a preview of it as we slide into the interview, and if you're a fan of it, like I am, you can follow the link in the description to pre-save it ahead of time. With that, let's wrap things up and get to the interview. Here's the Idiom Podcast with Morgan Madison. back to the EDM podcast today. I'm joined by Morgan Madison. Morgan, how are you doing today? I'm good, man. How are you? Not too bad. So to start, I'd like to learn a bit about your background with music. You can go back as far as you'd like, but I'd like to learn what got you into music and later on music production. I mean, my background with music um, as a passion went back to my cousin gave me like a, the Linkin Park reanimation album, which was like half electronic. Um, and then later I started playing, I started playing drums in like eighth grade, um, which I got really good at for about eight years. And I was sort of playing drums in tandem with when I started production, but I played a lot of like heavy metal music. And so I, I, over the years I developed a tendon problem in my left foot called plantar fasciitis, which got really severe. Um, and then around that time, uh, I discovered dead mouse, which was the trigger for for like starting production and um that's where I, that's where i got into it so kind of like what time period was that oh man um so i i mean i got into production in 2010 sort of lightly like i bought ableton um but i was doing most of my demoing out with this like really shitty phone app for like <laughs> dubstep because like I, the first thing i heard was uh raise your weapon yeah and uh you know Everyone knows the drop, so that's that's what was cool for about a year back then. And then, um, then I then I heard the full album and started to realize how deep dance music can run and what the variation was like. Um, so probably like the new the new years were like 2010 to 2015, and I graduated college in 2015, and that's when things. Once I graduated and got a job, that's when things became a little more serious because I realized I wasn't really as happy at the job, so I needed to really polish up the production if I wanted to do it. What did you go to college for? So I actually got a, an English degree, but so I went to Hamden Sydney College in Southern Virginia, and their program is is like a liberal arts program. So 
you basically have two to two and a half years of covering all the bases, science, math, you know, you have to reach this threshold in all areas in order to start yeah. focusing on your degree. And part of the reason I went with English was actually because the it wasn't just like a literature program. It was more of in tandem with this rhetoric program that was, was about, uh, how to describe it, um, communication and like making points, basically. Yeah. And a lot of what I saw lacking, especially in the jobs world and even in the business world and everything like that, was just people... People don't know how to write correctly, and they don't know how to ar- articulate points correctly. So that's that's why I chose that. So when you were in college studying English, was production just like a hobby for you, or did you have any bigger aspirations while you're there? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, everybody everybody wants when you discover something you're passionate about, um, like EDM, or or if you want to be a rock star, or whatever. Like everybody dreams about it being a thing one day. But for me in college, I was pretty. I was kind of embarrassed because I think I I really knew I wasn't good. Like there would be there would be times when I would make tracks that were like old school progressive house sort of thing, like you know Dead Mouse Faxing Berlin or Not Exactly or stuff like that. But it would be like isolated in a like the the library cubicle, and if someone would walk up, I'd be like, oh shit, like I got to minimize. <laughs> I think I knew I wanted it to be that, but it's just like unlike a real instrument where you put hours and hours into just manually do it like plucking the strings or, or hitting the drums the problem with production is it can it, it can just become so frustrating on a computer because like you suck for so long yeah. and like there's no visceral way to like get past it. it's just pushing buttons so i sucked for a long time yeah it's such an interesting thing where if you you know what you say play the guitar for a year by the end of that year you're gonna be able to play some songs for some friends but with production it's honestly, there's a good chance that anything that you make still isn't going to be that palatable to your friends. So it's this crazy idea where even if you spend so much time on it, it takes a while to get those first things where friends and other people start to respond to what you're creating. Right. Yeah. I mean, the problem is like with product, like if you're kind of good at guitar, people will be like, oh, that's kind of good. Like you're, you're decent. But if you're kind of good at production, like the audience exactly. doesn't bridge the gap. It, it just doesn't sound good, you know, which is kind of a brutal thing it's like the first time i would the first few times i would show people stuff they'd be like oh this is you know interesting or whatever but it's it's all it was always that that sort of like passive positive thing where people are encouraging because like why wouldn't they be encouraging but at the same time it's like this isn't you know you could tell they're thinking this wasn't going to work it's funny i don't know why i wonder if that has changed at all since you and i were in college and high school and again, like I'm in my mid twenties, it's not like I'm that old, but I wonder if there's more openness to people wanting to learn how to produce because it was definitely like a similar thing for me where it was such like a weird, strange thing where I would also hide myself in the library and like sneak into the math department at midnight to be able to go produce because it wasn't as quote unquote accepted as, you know, playing guitar or singing or something more forward facing like that. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely felt that too. Um, when I was learning, I mean, even there, there even be times when like my dad would walk into the room when I was producing early, like in 2014, 2015, he'd be like, what, what are you doing in here? <laughs> yeah. Like, cause he just didn't understand like, you know, early in the process or like when you're building a song, it's like a lot like painting, you know, someone, yeah, someone checks out your, your, your track or, or early on, it's only going to be like a piece that's, that's not even close to fully developed. You know, it's like who looks at the painting when it's half painted? sort of, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's, is what it is. So you graduated college and got a job after that. Were you continuing to do music? Kind of talk about that transition with a, you know, quote unquote, more traditional career and wanting to do music aside from that. So before, so I had a, I had a previous alias before Morgan Madison um, that I would use, that I was using as like my pure passion project and stuff I would put out uh, sort of in tandem with normal life. And that alias was called um, Suits and Skulls, and it was sort of like this like video and music partnership with a friend of mine, and we were both like pretty decent at what we did, but we didn't have enough focus to realize that you sh- like if you're going to do music, just do music. If you're going to do video, just do video. Like let's not take on too much at one time. But basically, you know how it is when you're first starting out uh, and you have a normal like a normal job and everything like that. It's like in your spare time when you're into music, you like a lot of the times you like the weird stuff like Flume. Rusty or yeah. John Hopkins and stuff like that. So basically, I would come, I would get get out of like normal life, and I'd find like a span of three or four hours, and then a lot of it would be like ambient piano mixed with like like 
rough beats and flume drops and it was good it's just like when you're when you're when you have the day job and and i was coming home i would sort of project my like need to escape into the music and it ended up being this like pretty unmarketable experimental sound and then eventually so i i, I put out an album under that alias like a full 12 or so full 11 song album like all at once which was really dumb um but i did it anyway and the i remember the the head of artist relations at tunecore like got a hold of me personally and was like hey uh apple wants to use this album cover and your assets for the album like in the upcoming marketing for the home pod and i was like what the hell like <laughs> that is crazy because yeah i mean because at the time you know alexa and HomePod and all that stuff was new you know no one really knew yeah. that i was going to be the next big thing everyone just kind of was like i guess they're trying this new this new gimmick but it was really i remember the euphoria of getting that because and you know nowadays if they wanted to do that it's like that's really cool that apple wants to use that for marketing but at the same time like that's really not going to help me make a living mm-hmm. um that's what I would say now. But back then it was like somebody had shown me some sense yeah. of interest and legitimacy from a very high level in my work. And I remember it was lunchtime at my uh, job at the time. And I went outside and I was, I, I called my parents and I was like, guys, I have to do this. And so that's, that's when I got the bug, but that was sort of the, the music work balance at the time. That's kind of what yeah. the dynamic was. I think that's so interesting. And I've had that discussion with a lot of people on this podcast, this idea of, creative confidence and trusting that you belong here, even if getting you know contacted by Apple isn't going to launch your career and do everything you need to after, it's kind of just like giving you some assurance that you belong here, which I think a lot of artists struggle with, trusting themselves that they do belong yeah. in this industry. Yeah, I mean, totally. It's, uh, I remember back in 2013, 2014, all I remember thinking to myself, like if I could just upload a track and have some people enjoy it and maybe get like a thousand plays on SoundCloud, like then I'd be happy, you know, yeah, stuff like that. Like there's, there are these little things you build in your mind where it's like you value them in terms of accomplishment and, and confidence and having those things happen is, is what usually pushes you to the next stage. So you said that that album that you put out was purely weird and creative, and you kind of described it as being unmarketable. Was that something that you felt at the time, or is that just you looking back in retrospect? At the time, I thought, like, at the time, I thought I had created, like, gold. Like, at the yeah. time, I was sitting in my room, and, and I will never have this experience again, because I don't know another instance where a person just puts out a full album, and then, like, like, puts like $500 into submit hub and then it's like soul rended. So it's like what happened was at the time I made it, I, I thought that, and it is really honest and good. Like it's, it's really good stuff. And, but the, but a, you know, an 11 minute track that has, you know, seven different movements or like a, or a six minute song that goes from an orchestra to like break beats to a trap drop. Yeah. You know, what I, I don't think, what I didn't consider was that the audience wouldn't be like holistically interested in hearing that. Like I'd be hitting the trap audience for one part. I'd be hitting a classical audience for another part. I'd yeah. be hitting like a peaceful piano audience for another part. And like the reason it was unmarketable wasn't because it was totally unprofessional because it was like pretty much like 70% as, as professional as my current work. Mm-hmm. But it, it just the ideas like the songwriting was just way overindulgent so it was like it had no home i guess for me it just speaks to the idea of palatability right like i think your music can be purely weird and creative but you do have to think about that if you want it to respond and resonate with a large audience how palatable is this music so kind of on that note and i'm sure we'll loop this back in but what were those like next steps once you put out that album, maybe realized, hey, this isn't going to be connecting with people? And what did you go from there for your artist project? Well, I, I knew I needed to rebrand completely. Um, I knew I needed to start like a new name and a new sound and something that I could do on a consistent basis that I could pump out that I was still passionate about, but I could also do repeatedly and have something like every month, month and a half. Um, and when I quit, I also 
when I quit my job, I also realized I, I did something really stupid. So I, 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 in tandem with, with this rebrand and stuff, when I quit my job, I had not come up with the rebrand. So I basically gave myself one year to be able to not, not only come up with a new thing, but like come up with something really solid and then get the releases going and then actually start to make a bit of income, which as you know, it takes months to collect royalties, even if you're doing it directly from your distributor anyway. Yeah. So like that was, that was the first, that was the first process, but it was about five months after quitting. Cause I, I really deliver, I had to think hard about it. Uh, and I'd go, I'd gone through so many name ideas and so many sound ideas. And at the time I was like super into Odessa and, and sort of like that experimental indie electronic stuff. Yeah. Um, at least I thought I was in reality, I was still into dance music, but, um, cause that was what was cool back in, in, in 20, you know, 2016, 2017 mm -hmm. was the indie stuff. But, uh, anyway, so about five months into quitting my job and just making music alone, I was feeling really defeated and like, I couldn't figure out a proper master and, and, and mixing quite right. And all my tracks were quieter than everybody else's. And we're having this, my girlfriend and I were sharing a bottle of red wine outside. And I was just like, what about Morgan Madison? And she was like, I really like that. And I was like, yeah, but like the A is going to be an I, it's going to be like Morgan. She was like, that's perfect. And I was like, that's it. That's it right there. <laughs> because I realized that with with Morgan Madison, I could be a person as well as an artist. You know, it was like maximum yeah. flexibility. It doesn't have to be like an artist name like like Orange Dragonfly or, or something. Like Yeah. It's like very like esoteric idea. Yeah. It was something people could attach to and it was like a some like a person that, that people could identify with, not just a specific artist vibe project. Um, mm. which worked out really well because the first the first like six months to a year of Morgan Madison was like a mess. It was yeah. like, I remember I, I dropped uh, this song called uh, dream, which has now been removed, which was basically like a, like a rustic sort of melodic Odessa trap song. And then I dropped a chill house song called remember. And then I dropped an, like an EP that had lo-fi hip hop in it, 90 BPM pop, chill pop. And then it had, <laughs> Uh, pure electric mantis melodic trap in it, like all, all in one package. Yeah. And um, which was all good stuff and people responded to it, but, but that's how that sort of transition happened. And, and good thing I had the, the previous alias first because I would have been even more screwed if I'd just gone straight in, you know? Yeah. So describe to people listening why it's bad that you had, or, you know, why it's quote unquote bad that you had so many different styles on that EP. It's, it's not like it's a bad thing. Like I feel, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like a lot of people get sort of feel like this suffocating feeling that they have to make the same exact song over and over and over again. I think the the compounding issue is when you're when your when your musical project is young, a lot of things are developing at the same time, like your songwriting, your arrangement, your knowledge of arrangements, you know, chords, you're still developing your drums and synth sounds and all this other stuff that makes you you and uh Basically, if it comes out too, if it comes out too spastic, in, in my mind, uh, if you want to exist purely on streaming services and do all this stuff at once, you totally can. It's doable. It's just when you start to take that out of streaming culture and just casual consumption, you, you start to hit these roadblocks of like, how do I gain real fans over time and gain an actual huge fan base by if I'm if I'm doing all these different things at once. And then the other thing is the biggest, the biggest problem for me too, was as soon as I played like one thing live, I realized lo-fi hip hop trap and like chill pop and house and everything doesn't work live. Like, I don't know how a promoter was going to book me. Like if the yeah. promoter came up to me and said, so how, you know, or came up to my manager and was like, so how do we book this guy? at EDC, you know, or whatever, which, you know, obviously I'm not there yet, but like, as an example, they're going to not book you. They're going to book someone else that's more reliable. So there are a lot of these issues with that. I mean, that that's something I thought about a lot. Totally. I kind of want to dive deeper into this just because I feel like a lot of people listening to this podcast probably have different styles and influences and are struggling to find what their needs should be. So 
when you made that conscious decision, like, hey, I can't spread myself out with all these different styles. I need to narrow the focus and direction of my sound a little bit. Was that you, I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase this, were you comfortable with that decision? Was that you being like, hey, I'm going to be slightly less creative, but I have a better shot of making a career because I'm just narrowing things a little bit with my direction? Um, it was actually like, I kind of lucked out in that regard because it was actually a passion decision. Like okay. at the time, at the time I decided I was going to purely do dance music. Most of my, most of my years getting into electronic music was dance music. It was yeah. like all forms of, of melodic dance music, you know, all the greats like, like Cascade, uh, and, and everything. These guys who were doing deep house and then like big room house and then trance everything in between but it was still them so i went i went back and i listened to all the albums that got me into it like dead mouse's random random album title which is just incredible and i listened to some of the artists that are doing it well today and i sort of realized like this is like so me like i am totally missing the point here and i realized that i was making other stuff in a sort of like attempt to pander and be something different different when in reality when i started making the dance music it was just me. So it's a struggle. I totally, I totally understand. But and in, in the same sense, it's like every artist has their own journey to figure out where that niche is. And, and for some people, it's easier to find. Some people, it's harder to find. And I think even just looking at your career from the outside, like you started in 2010, you had a project before the Morgan Madison, then you had a rebrand with styles that you weren't, um, that you ended up kind of like taking down. It took you a while, even after you were releasing to figure out what exactly is the niche that you want to fit your music style into. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It's like, I only figured it out. I thought I had it figured out like 10 months ago, 12 months ago, but I really didn't figure it out until about five months ago. And then like the floodgates just opened and it's like, now I have like 60 unreleased tracks. I, like, I can't even stop. It just, it was so satisfying when I finally found it too, that it just like, yeah, like you'll know when you find it because you can't mm -hmm. stop doing it. And I mean, after I hit that point, now I've got like enough music for some of these, some of the songs I have right now probably won't come out for another four years. So I kind of want to circle back to the growth of your project, um, just kind of like from what we can see publicly for Morgan Madison. So I know you were independent for a while. What were your kind of strategies to grow your brand, your artist project at those earlier stages? When I first started, before I even launched Morgan Madison, when I knew what Morgan Madison was going to be, and I was prepping the stuff. I had the first couple songs. Um, I was prepping like, all right, here's here's I need to find these blogs, and I need to find I need to get on these indie playlists, like study vibes, you know, whatever, in yeah. order to get the first thousand streams. Because that's what you got to do when you're first. If you're indie and you're first starting out, you got to figure out, especially on Spotify, how am I going to get the stream count circulating so that then I can hit Discover Weekly and all these other organic methods to start growing. And I remember before I launched, I ran into this artist called Shalu. I don't know if you've heard of him. Yeah. So I, I come across his page on Spotify because I'm searching people in similar genre spaces to what I was about to put out and, and how they were getting their streams. And uh, so Shalu turns out is, is his, his name's Joe Boston. And I went to high school with him. And not only did I go to high school with him, but I was in a <laughs> band with him. So I come across this guy on Spotify before I'm even, and here I thought that my situation was unique. You know, it was like, I didn't have any friends yeah. that had pursued music full time. And then all of a sudden I hit a Spotify page. It's 3.6 million monthly listeners. That is crazy. And I'm like, oh my God, it's Joe. And at this point I, I started like freaking out. Cause I was like, if he could do it, I could totally do it. Like, this is so cool. Yeah. And so that's when I became obsessed with playlisting, uh, which many people still are. And because for a few years, you know, 2016, probably 20 to last year and this year still, but the playlisting was pretty much like the premier way to start to get your numbers circulating because people will organically run into your stuff like after the first few thousand, basically. Yeah. But I, I basically, after that point, when Morgan Madison launched, just spent hours and hours and hours looking up tiny little indie playlists, tiny little blogs just pouring money into submit hub and uh figuring out a way to get stuff circulating and then eventually on my third release this old track i had called uh better days hit a, hit a hit a editorial playlist and that's how i started making a living 
That's crazy. I think there's so much value in the fact that you were doing this all by yourself, hustling, and even some of the smaller indie playlists understanding like, hey, if I can get 500 streams here, 500 streams there, those can get the ball rolling for me to get into Discover Weekly and the official Spotify editorial playlist. Yeah, I mean, everyone's got to do it uh, when they start out. And for me, it was actually pretty encouraging because if you think about it, if you can find 500 indie playlists that'll playlist your song and, and each of those playlists is giving you 500 plays, that's enough to start circulating your stuff, you know? And yeah, once you have an okay amount of streams, then you can start engaging with labels. Uh, and that's exactly what I did. I, uh, I remember it was only, it was two months into Morgan Madison. I had sent a, um, the track is on my page now from 2018. It's called what you want, what you want. And, um, I remember it's kind of like this, like bouncy disco track. Basically it's technically house, but, we could get back into the genre focusing later, but yeah, uh, they heard it and they they hadn't signed anything like it before, and they were like, "Well, this is really good. We want to sign it." And at the time, Lowly Palace was like such a cool label. They had this like unique art direction, and every every song got like a customized art video. And I was flipping out. And it, it gave me the confidence to to really start. So I know that you're with management now. And I always like talking about the importance of building the right team around you on this podcast. So kind of talk about what the growth was for you as an independent artist and then eventually moving on to signing with a manager. Yeah. I mean, indie, indie's hard because you got to do at, at the same reason it's hard. I think it's really valuable to be indie for an extended period of time because you'll, you'll understand the things that your manager is going to have to do later. Learning the ins and outs of that stuff, like not just making the music, but making sure, I mean, everything from like correct looking album art, like professional looking website, is the font ugly or not? You know, this is all stuff that people, somebody on your team has to worry about. When you're, when you're indie, you got to do it all yourself. And it really sucks. And it's quite frankly, really hard to get through. Uh, but for me personally, I did it for um, two years before I found my current manager. Uh, and even then, you know, finding my current manager was the same process as indie releasing where you just like are digging all over the internet to try and find some connections. And I, I had had a few management offers before, uh, but my gut told me that it just wasn't the right move. Like mm -hmm. in my mind, and my current manager says this, says this quite frequently. So he's like, he's like, I view proper management kind of like a marriage. It's like, you're going to... If, if, if you're really going for it, your manager's got to know like everything about you, how your, how your, how your brain works and how you approach like every situation basically. And I just never felt that for the first couple of years. Um, and then I was scouring LinkedIn and found, uh, rain and messaged him and he responded. And then, so that was at the beginning of my project. And then he sort of watched my project grow and then about a year and a half into Morgan Madison, when I sort of went quiet and realized even, even after I had rebranded from that previous alias, I'd finally found what I really want to do. So I sent him about a year and 10 months in or something like that. I sent, I sent him about 20, 20 demos and he was like, well, like totally, totally on board with this. And then we ended up having the same exact ideals, same exact yeah. business thoughts, like all this stuff. And then it really, really clicked. And that's what I think people should look for. Just the idea that he really bought into what you're doing is crucial and essential, really. Yeah. I mean, because you'll feel it. Like, if you, yeah. there's, there's always, you know, most managers are really chill and, and good at their jobs. But a lot of times I saw, and I mean, I haven't been around that long, but like, I've been around long enough to run into enough artists where the management is sort of like just filling that position. Because yeah. that position in itself, a manager has a lot of value because it removes the artist from the personal, personal uh, interaction space where yeah. you're not just an artist contacting everyone manually saying, hey, please add me to your playlist or hey, can I play this show? Hey, can I, can I, can I? It's yeah. someone else coming on behalf of the artist. So the artist is once removed and that in itself adds value. But like beyond that, in my mind, I knew that if I really wanted to make this like a 20 year career, I desperately needed another person as like a buddy on the field that cares as much about surviving than just getting through the contract, you know? 
and and making like the project something really really special because on the flip side if you're a manager that just comes into a project and signs on and you're just sort of like riding the wave there's no real true passion or drive there in in my opinion yeah you're starting a business with them right and you need to yeah. analyze it from the perspective of that like is this somebody that I want to be starting a small business with like i've got a lot of really great friends who i love more than anything that so help me god i would not want to start a business with so it's the same yes, thing when you're signing on to yeah. a manager. It's like thinking about it like that. Yeah, that's a that's a that's yeah, it's a perfect way to put it. I mean, they say the same thing about family. It's like don't don't go into business with family with good reason because yeah. most interpersonal relationships like that, when when shit hits the fan and you have to be really close with them and and do that sort of like brutally honest communication and self analysis, most people sort of like clench up or wall up or or leave their contract and then sign with somebody else. So at this point, I kind of want to slide into production. And I think a good place to start would be, you said that you were finding your workflow for your current sound, like you have six years or so um, demos that you've got saved up. So kind of in the space of that, do you have a general workflow that you use to develop those tracks? Like what does your uh, creative process look like from the start? Um, so, so a lot of the tracks that are in my current, like extremely productive workflow um, have not been released yet, but it's like, for me, there are a few things that, that spark creativity. The first thing for, for me right now in the last six months has been arpeggios because yeah. not because they sound cool, um, but because I can hit a lot of notes in sequence and then sort of pair like a vocal sample or a bass line with them to get a lot more interesting results than just chords. So like usually when I start a project, even if it ends up being chords, like eventually recently I've just been doing bass some sort of interesting melodic sample and an arpeggio just to get yeah. the just to get like the key and, and and the song flowing and then um which helps especially when you're in like more progressive leaning dance music which is what my future looks like that's sort of how i start um obviously since it's it's dance music i was talking to my friend about this the other day the for me the a really huge productivity hack is i mean it's going to be dance music so like you're going to have a 4/4 kick uh, or some variation of it, so you can get you can get to a decent jam really quickly. And then other than that, it's just for me, it has to do everything to do with uh, what's inside my DAW and like my default project setup and some of my VSTs. So, kind of on that note, do you have any VSTs or effects that are integral to your workflow at this point? Yeah, um, there's. I I absolutely adore. Uh, so what I before I get to VSTs, there's basically my project setups are buses, um, which some people don't bus. I think I saw Chris Lake the other day was talking about how he doesn't use buses at all, but I like to use them because it helps me mix and group things and be yeah. more productive and save time. But so you'll have like lead synths, uh, soft synths for chords, percussion, um, kicks, and then bass and then effects and then, and then fills like drum fills. Yeah, which have their own bus for me. Um, so in those buses, uh, my favorite VST right now, probably. I mean, there are two VSTs that I that I love. There's there's the synthesizer, the Arturia Mini V3, yeah, which is basically like the most amazing little analog emulator. It's like so, it's so rich, and there are so many sounds in there that you just couldn't get out of like silent or anything like that. Yeah. Um, the same thing goes for Diva. Um, I don't have Diva, but I've I've tested it out before, and the uh, Diva Diva is a really good way to get good synth sounds immediately as well. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of actual sound and workflow, since since I am in dance music, and I, this would work for people in any type of EDM, really, there's this free plugin called um, Audio Assault Transient. I think if you if you just Google Audio Assault Transient, it's like yeah. it's a transient shaper that has I think two knobs. And one of them is attack and one of them is sustain. And on a lot of my percussion and kick drums, I'll use, I'll use the in-house like Ableton uh, parameters to sort of shape my kick drums and things like that. But when I put audio salt transient on the kick drum and just move the sustain knob up like a little bit to like the first dot, and you'll see what I'm talking about. If, if anybody uses it, who, who, yeah. who's listening that like, saves my life on on the kick drum just having that little bit of extra poke and or penetration into the mix so crucial for me 
Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And even just listening to the style of music that you're making, there's so many different layers and textures and transients punching through those layers with your drums, with your synths, with your bass. So that makes a lot of sense that you're really controlling and shaping the dynamics because it is dance music. You have to think about the way that it's grooving and feeling and something as simple as a transient shaper uh, makes a ton of sense that that's like an integral part of your workflow. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, and it's especially in like club music because uh, a lot of my stuff is sort of deeper progressive house uh, that's coming up. Uh, it's it's pretty crucial that the kick sit right. Um, and a lot of kicks, if you're in, you know, if you're in hard style, like no one really cares, but like, if you're if you're if you're doing like really technical like uh, progressive house, uh, you know you you want it to sound good in, in the club and the kick yeah. sitting right is probably the most important part. So kind of on that note, um, I feel like a lot of people really struggle with their approaches to layering. Um, I think one track of yours that really stands out in terms of like a nice cohesive punchy layer is "All in My Head," and I'll just play a little preview of that for people to check out. So kind of talk about, do you have a general approach when it comes to layering? How do you build a big cohesive mix with sounds where it doesn't get too uh, muddy or messy? Um, I mean, that's a really good question. That's the eternal problem, right? Uh, <laughs> it's like, it's still not easy for me at all. I mean, it's like, that's probably the worst part um, because you like, I have this issue all the time where I get the ideas and there's something missing. And oftentimes it's actually a, it has to do with like a, the frequency range there. I mean, to get a full mix, I would look into all, all Ableton users should look at, first of all, for a full mix and sort of having everything sound together. Uh, the first thing I'll do is I'll go to the glue compressor in Ableton and I'll use the low extender on the bass and then mess around with the parameters. Cause a lot of the times when a song is sounding weak, it's like the kick is okay and the bass is like a little too subdued and the sub is the sub is not compressed enough uh and you can overdo it on that too but that's that's like where i usually go if a song is sounding weak is the kick in the bass all in my head's a good example of that where the kick and the bass are really tight um and and it's actually like really really compressed like borderline too compressed yeah um but luckily uh since all the elements are so busy all the time and on top of each other, you can't really hear any any bit of distortions. That's why it's so loud and, and balanced for that song all in my head. Uh, yeah. But like in general, especially with lead synths, oftentimes I think people have just one lead uh, when in reality, especially in EDM, it's important to have like two to four um, and then use really sharp EQs to sort of round out the uh, or fill, fill out the whole frequency range. So like... If you're if you're if your lead is is you want your lead to sound really full if you're like making music like lane eight um, you'll want the main lead line and then maybe duplicate it and then take all the reverb and delay off and then focus on that second lead only being in the mid range and like sharp EQ that into the mid range and take all yeah. the notes down an octave um, and then you'll barely notice it but like the top lead will be doing most of the singing and the, and the melody and the texture. And then that mid lead will just make it like a lot more meaty. Um, but I mean, those are a couple of tips that I've, that I use. So one more thing to kind of add on top of that is I really like the way that you approach your mixes with these dense atmospheric textures. You talked about how arpeggios are kind of a cornerstone for a lot of the music that you're going to be releasing coming up. Do you have a general approach when you're building out kind of the space of your mix around your central elements like your leads basses and drums yeah so um for me personally since i i hate chords i cannot stand building chords it's like a really big problem and what i'll usually do is i'll find some ambient sound uh and then you know mess around with it like re re uh repitching it or, or something like that make a pad out of it and then sort of EQ it so that it's it's a mid and a bit of high for the for the pad, and so that fills out this like space with like heavy reverb. And a lot of the times you don't. A lot of producers will say don't overuse reverb, don't overuse reverb because you're going to muddy everything up. But I found that 
if you get really good at side chaining, which is like one of my main things, is like everybody uses side chaining. But like my approach has been a lot of ambience. And if you listen to any of my tracks, they have a ton of ambience and, and yeah. reverb, but it's it's like it's dipped under the percussion properly so it doesn't sound like loosey goosey and uh, sort of muddy. But like for me, I sort of the cardinal rule usually is like don't apply reverb to uh make your mix sound better because you're just you're basically just putting a band-aid over a gash if you're doing that that's what people like to say yeah but like for me uh it's worked in a lot of instances where where it shouldn't um and i think that's just because of the way i mix things together um i hope that helps but i mean for my that's like core to my sound too uh i wouldn't suggest everybody does that because a lot of times if you if you drown your mix in a lot of reverb it, it won't work out but since I've been doing it for so long, it sort of works for me. Totally. I definitely feel like it's a stylistic thing with your approach to like building out ambiences with reverb. And it sounds like, you know, people say don't do it because you'll muddy up your mix. But if you're very smart about the way that you're doing it, which is to sidechain it to your lead element. So they poke through. And then um, I would say a lot of reductive EQ, making sure you're really shaving off the low mids so that you're avoiding the mud that everyone's talking about. You can get those big dense mixes without... Um, interfering with the low end or with getting in the way of your lead stuff. Yeah, I mean, what you said there about the cutting, cutting some of the, the first of all, most of the mids uh, is crucial. I also found one of my biggest problem is always because I'm always EQing super, super sharp to make sure that nothing is getting in the way of like any of the mid synths and especially the, the bass because that would suck. But yeah. like a lot of the times in my early days, I found myself leaving too much of the high end of the reverb. So like if you EQ a lot of the super high end of the reverb to just, you know, let your hi-hats and all your fills and your snares and everything claps sort of take that range, you know, some, probably some of the high mid is where you're going to get a lot of that space. Something that's core to my sound is leaving that in there and sort of letting it sing and like ring through. Um, But yeah, I think you can hear it in all my production. It wasn't until the the last couple of years that I realized how prominent it was. So is there anything right now that you're doing in the DAW that's either a new workflow technique or a new plugin that is just really inspiring you to create? I, it was like, I didn't, it, it was only probably in the last nine months that I discovered um, the Arteria Mini V3, which yeah. is like, has been, as we, as we discussed before, it's been a huge sort of hack for me in unlocking a new style. Um, a lot of the times, like as a producer, I don't think it's, it's pretty hard to know what sort of synth or thing is going to unlock that next sort of DAW proficiency level for you. Some people like, some people will take a look at Serum and they're like, oh my God, this is so, so my workflow. I can basically do whatever I want. Uh, I look at Serum and I'm just confused for whatever yeah. reason. Like I can't, I'm not that good at it. Uh, whereas, you know, I look at, I used, started using Arturia Mini V3 and it was like, wow, this is totally totally yeah. my style i mean i would rather have that synth than any of my other synths aside from massive for like because i use massive for 808s and sub bass but everything else can just go away now because like i'm so comfortable with with it yeah i think that's such a crucial idea of building out your workflow is finding the right plugins for your style and your sound like right just because a plugin is popular doesn't mean that that's right for your workflow for example I've personally never really gravitated towards the Arteria stuff. They haven't worked for my workflow, but I know so many people absolutely love them. Same with, um, I'm trying to think of another example, like Isotope Trash 2. I know it's a really popular distortion plugin, but for the more like analog warm stuff that I'm working on, Trash 2 is really just overkill for that. I would rather go for something like a decapitator. So it's really important not just to, you know, get a plugin because your favorite artist uses it, but to think, hey, do I really like the tone and texture that I can get out of this? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I know, um, like Lane Eight, for instance. Pretty much, I don't, I don't mean I don't want to speak for him or anything, but I've I, I I've watched some interviews and I've heard that he's just really big on Diva, which is just like a simple little red analogy thing. And it's like he doesn't need a lot. This is a, he's actually a really good example of how you don't need a lot of anything to do what you want to do. It's just about how you're using it. And like, I think a lot of people grind, grind, grind on, on trying to figure out all these different things they can use when in reality, it's just going to be about finding the right couple things that jive with your style. And like, it can be discouraging because 
trying new synths out, like for a lot of people, isn't fun. Like trying a new drum set out is fun. Like you know, trying new guitar pedals out, that's fun. Mm-hmm. But figuring out what like programs to install that can unlock your potential <laughs> is not fun, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it takes a lot of time, but I would definitely encourage people because like you never know. I mean, when I found the, the mini V3, it was like I had, it's like my, it's like my productivity aged about five years, you know, yeah. it's just, it's so, it's so sick. Sweet. So I kind of want to loop back into some of the different influences that you had earlier on with your productions. I know right now you're kind of very laser focused on what you're doing with the Morgan Madison project. I'm curious, do you have anything outside of that, that you're doing creatively with music? Yeah. So I, at the time, currently I have a, I have a couple of things. So Morgan Madison is, is the, uh, the main horse. Like that is what I do. Um, outside of that, I, I actually, uh, produce for some other artists, um, and I've tried been trying to work with like more pop leaning singers and things like that, just to sort of get the, get those styles out of my system. And then I have a lo-fi project on the side that I do, uh, for like more like an, like a relaxation outlet and sort of like a secondary place to, to funnel my energy for sort of the more distorted beats and things like that so that I can really keep Morgan Madison laser focused um, lo-fi projects called not yourself. You can, you can find it on Spotify, wherever. Um, but I do think it's important to have like, cause Morgan Madison is 99% of my time. It's like so lofty and the, but I think it's important because to, to try these other things just for fun, because you don't have to, you don't have to, if you, no matter what you start, um, you don't, there's no strings attached on a lot of this stuff. So like you have your main artist project that you, that you're trying to make a career and then why not try a bunch of other things out to see how they go? You know, the worst thing that can happen is, is you'll learn something. Mm -hmm. Um, but for me personally, it helps me take the pressure off the the main career and sort of make it more healthy because I can get my energies out in different, in different outlets. And I know a lot of producers do the same thing too. I just think I was listening to the, uh, when the disco fries came on here and they were talking about a lot of the same thing. I think I love hearing about that because I get a lot of kind of newer and intermediate producers that say, Hey, I've got like all these different inspirations, but I can only produce this one style. And you know, your favorite artists, I'm sure every single one of them either has a side project or produces music that isn't specifically for this, their project. And it's for the reasons that you just laid out one, it's a creative outlet for them. It's nice to have something where it's just like, it doesn't matter what, where this gets signed to or what the final end result is. And then two, you never really know what's going to happen from it. So I think that's a really crucial piece of advice for anyone that has different influences, still wants to have that career focus, but um, yeah, just wants to make sure that they're getting their creative outlet in music outside of uh, you know a career growth focus project. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't even have to be another specific genre based musical project. Like you could even do like you know synth experiments and just get textures out of it and you could easily you know contact sample websites or whatever it is it's important because energy is a real thing it's very important that you try to as much as possible preserve the positive energy for your main project and if you're feeling like as a producer that you're overwhelmed or you're thinking what if this what if that should i try this should i try that there's not enough time and, and you're beginning to have too much of a burden on top of your musical project it's it's so yeah. good to branch out i definitely identify with that idea of just getting it out of your system like i feel like yeah. any remix that i do i always have to get out two crappy ideas one of them's like an r&b and then the other one's like an indie rock idea before i get to the third one which is like an actually release ready idea and i don't know why but I, at this point, I almost know it's going to happen where I have to get to get through two or three just to get the like purely creative stuff out of my system. And then I can kind of grind a bit more for something that's more palatable and release ready. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So to wrap things up, i uh, got a few more questions. First off, what's going to be coming up for you in the next few months? Um, so well, I'm, I'm getting into a phase now where I'm going to be releasing some stuff that is uh, like very, very purely me. And I'm really excited about it because it just represents everything I'm passionate about, about dance music. Um, I'm really passionate about my current work. I also feel like the stuff I currently have out is basically just the roots to what this new stuff is because I have so much completed new music 
that it outnumbers my current existing public catalog by like five. So with that said, I mean, the next, the next thing that's going to come out, I believe will come be coming out next is as a song called already known, uh, which is different from anything I put out in that it's a completely free form dance track with a lot of sort of progressive synths and layers that come and go. And the only break in the beat is actually in, in the middle of the song where it tapers off for just a minute to like bring you into the climax. Whereas yeah. a lot of EDM tracks right now structurally are doing, you know, hook, build, drop, break, build, drop, outro. And that is definitely not what this is. So yeah, so that's what it is. And, and it's, it's, it's got a heavy focus on like melodics and beauty and, and, a, and a really mis- sort of like ambient, mysterious aesthetic while still being hard hitting sort of represents everything I love about dance music currently. So awesome. Sweet. Well, definitely looking forward to that. One more question. We've got a lot of newer producers listening to this podcast. What advice would you give to them to give them the best chance of success moving forward with production? Work really, really, really hard. Um, but at the same time, enforce enough, enforce enough variation on your day that you're not stuck at a trench. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that hit me and was a problem when I was first starting was basically getting in my own head and getting to a point where I felt I could, I could barely be productive in a day. And if I just got a piece of an idea out, that would be a productive day. You know, that's not healthy. You should spread out your days. Sometimes take, force yourself to take a half day and then like go on a hike. And then like the next day, force that just to be a completely sound design focused day. Yeah. Maybe the next day after that say, all right, I have one or two hours and literally set a timer uh, you say like, I have, I have one, two hours to do this one thing and then do the one thing and then step away. And then if you start enforcing these sort of healthy mental boundaries on your project, I think people will find that they start to get a lot more done because a lot of the times, yeah, I mean, you don't really know where to start when you're, when you're trying to handle all this yeah. stuff. So I wish I had done that more. And that is the, that, the, some that is, those are some of the things that I would, I would do a lot more if I, if I could start over. Awesome. Well, with that, we'll wrap things up for this episode. You can find Morgan Madison's music in the description of this podcast, so go give it a listen as this episode is just about over. Morgan, it's been great chatting with you and I appreciate being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, man.